How is everybody? I'm Kevin. And welcome to Open a Fucking Book. So, let's tell you what this is all about. Uh, there's a lot of book podcasts out there. They're the great. They talk about books that are out and the authors who are writing them now. That's not what this one is about. This one is about uh, authors who have written some of your favorite books from years past. So, we go back way into like the 17th century all the way up till now. So, we're going to cover their their lives, their families, their friends, uh, everything that led them to be who they are and write what they wrote. So if you're joining us for the first time, that's great because it's our first episode. So when I came up with the idea for this particular podcast, there was one author that I had in mind. I don't know why. Uh, he just he was the first one to pop into my mind. He was the one I always thought about when doing this. So he's the one I went with. So that's what we're going to do. Your book boner. No, not a book boner. Your author boner. He's not an It's not an author boner. I don't have an author boner. It's just for some reason when I thought about doing this, he's the one who popped into my mind. I guess because out of all the bygone authors, he's the one I knew the most about because we live so close to where he grew up. Um, we live by St. We live in the Illinois side by St. Louis. So we live off close to where he was and that's what I guess that's why I thought of him first. So this man was America's most celebrated author and best known American living, said by the one and only P.T. Barnum to President Grant, who responded with simply, by no means. He wrote several novels, biographies, essays, editorials, and travel books. He was also a riverboat pilot, journalist, lecturer, entrepreneur, and inventor, but he's probably best known for a major classic of American literature, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and the very controversial Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, under the pen name of... Mark Twain. Mark Twain, of course. Now, he used different pen names before deciding on Mark Twain. Uh, he signed humorous and imaginative sketches as Josh. Fucking Josh. As fucking Josh until 1863. He also used the pen name Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, for a series of humorous letters, and he had a fairly odd obsession that baffled many, he was good friends with many of history's most interesting people from that time. Also, as you'll come to find, he loved to tell a tale or two, sometimes with conflicting takes on the same subject. We won't get to all that today. This will probably be a two-episode thing. I, I don't want it to be three episodes. I, I want to try and get it into two, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, we're going to cover uh, references real quick because can't really go on without telling everybody where you got your information from. Always cite your references. So, Allison Flood from The Guardian, biography.com, uh, the steamboattimes.com, which honestly they should be the first in this because they are who I got most of my stuff from. Whoever it was over there, and I looked, I couldn't find names, but whoever it was over there that did their research did a lot of it on him and his family. Uh, Joy Lanzerdorfer from Mental Floss. Study.com, liverrocks.com, uh, Doug Aldridge, sparknotes.com, Daniel Crown, Ted Gioia from American Magazine, Robert Graysmith from the Smithsonian, Mark Twain's own writings, and of course, Wikipedia. Now, everybody knows that Wikipedia isn't always the most reliable source because you can go in and edit it. Uh, the sites I went to were always blocked from editing. So you kind of hope that maybe they're a little bit more uh, correct. 
Uh, I use them most, mostly for the books, not so much about his life. Because for the books, it, it kind of just used to be like a summary and publication date. And they seem to be pretty spot on with that. Plus, they have it all in order. So you can go through and then you can go research and make sure everything's in order. And everything seemed to be in pretty good order. So that's what I all I tried to get through Wikipedia. But at some point, if you can't find the information, you got to go with what you can get. Now, Twain was born November 30th, 1835 as Samuel Langhorn Clemens in the tiny village of Florida, Missouri. Uh, I could spend an entire another episode just on his family. Like I said, Steamboat Times goes through and, and talks about his entire family, his wife, his kids, his parents, his brothers and sisters. I mean, it, it, it's a lot. So I, I took down as much as I could. To know the man, you really need to know where he came from. So John Clemens, his father, was born August 11th, 1798 in Campbell County, Virginia. In 1805, John's father was killed during a house raising when a log being pushed uphill suddenly rolled back and crushed him against the stump. Dying between a hard place and a hard place. Yeah. It, it's a horrible way to go. It, it, I, of all the horrible ways to go, I mean, because you can't imagine that you would die immediately. Oh, no. Death by splinters. I mean, well... These logs are huge. The logs that they use for house raising are so I would imagine that it would probably knock them out. But I, you can't know for sure if he would die immediately. You kind of hope he would. But that seems like... It a, depends on where it would squish you. Because, I mean, yeah, it would squish your organs, but... Well, it's like, I don't... It didn't say if he was standing, if he was sitting, if if it if it rolled over his legs and his chest, or if it, if it crushed him, like, in his midsection. It doesn't say that. It just says he was crushed between a stump and a log. And it seems horrible. It's like when you get smashed between a car and a tree and you're still alive for a little bit. Well, that's never happened to me, so I don't know. <laughs> you I can mean, look at signs with Mel Gibson. It's in there. That happens. Uh, now, his mother resettled and remarried, as you do in the 19th century. Uh, John would go on to work as a storekeeper, lawyer, judge, and land speculator, dreaming of wealth but never achieving it. He was forced to pay back his stepfather. Uh, that seems kind of weird to me that a stepdad or any parent would make their child pay them back. And it's not like he got into his 20s and he still lived with his parents and he had to start paying his way. John started working as a clerk at an age 11 to pay his own way through life, having to pay back his stepdad for all the money he had spent on raising him. So in 1821... The remaining estate of his biological father, consisting mostly of 10 slaves, was liquidated. His mother renounced her share in favor of her children, and John paid most of his share to his stepfather, a whopping $884.33. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot of money today, but back then, that would have been worth about $17,196. Yeah, here's... Nearly $900 for raising me when I'm 11 years old. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a little ridiculous, but different times, I guess. I don't know how many families did that. I, my parents never did it. I mean, your parents never did it. Uh, a couple of years later, he would go on to marry Jane Lampton. Now, Jane Lampton was born June 18, 1803 in Adair County, Kentucky. She was said to be a woman of exceptional beauty and wit and a graceful dancer and a favorite of many. She fell in love with a young doctor from Lexington. No, not John. His name was Richard Barrett. Uh, but they found it difficult to see each other because 
the 1800s, if you don't live pretty much in the same town or within a few miles from one another, you're never going to get to talk to each other. There's no phones yet. Um, there's no cars. You'd have to own a horse and buggy, which weren't cheap. So they fell out of communication with each other. Uh, they both felt rejected as a result, but she would remember him and actually attempt to find him later in life. Uh, no idea if she actually did or not, but it said that her engagement to John Clemens was, and I quote, more a matter of temper than tenderness, which is kind of kind of a gut shot if, you, if you're him, I guess. Like, hey, I'm just going to marry you because I have to. Pretty much. Because I, mean, I can't find the love of my life. Yeah, because it, back then if you got into your 20s and you weren't married, you were considered an old maid and they started looking for, you know, convents for you to join. Yeah. Uh, they married May 6th, 1823, when she was only 20. She was loyal and steadfast. So it wasn't one of those, oh, I'm only married because I have to be. I don't really give a shit about you. She she was a wife, and she bore seven children with him, and she was a mother, and she took that seriously. Unfortunately, she would only outlive three of them. So life wasn't easy for the Clemens family as John went job to job, somewhat high profile, but none of them made him rich or overly important like he had always dreamed of being. He made some poor investments, like spending $400 incrementally on 70,000 acres of Tennessee land that never produced much of anything due to its poor soil and hilly terrain. He often found it difficult to feed his family. And in case you were wondering, $400 then would be worth about mm, a little over $9,700 today. It, it doesn't seem like a lot of money, but... That's a lot of... I mean, it, if you're spending just under 10 grand on land that you can't use. Yeah, it's wasteful. That's a lot of money, especially when, when you don't have that much because they didn't have much. He, he went from job to job, never really held one down for too terribly long, and then he starts investing on all this land. Money problems follow the Clemens family, especially Sam, through life, even though he has a lot of it. Uh, at the end, he... He goes through it quickly and not always in the best way. He makes he follows his fa his father's footprints footsteps in uh, making bad investment decisions. Like father, like son. Yes. Uh, he never smiled. John was not a smiling man. Uh, Sam said he never saw his father laugh. So kind of just a, a very serious, almost depressed individual. However, his mother, by contrast, was fun-loving and tender-hearted. So we imagine that he got all of his humor from his mother, but later on in life, his seriousness probably from his father. There, Maybe his father was constantly constipated. <laughs> he does suffer from constipation later on in life. So if like father, like son, possibly. <laughs> probably get to that next episode, not this one, but that, that is something that will come up. Now, their oldest son, spelled Orion, but pronounced Orion, was born July 17, 1825. He would go on to be quite successful in St. Louis and be fairly close to his famous brother. Next was Pamela Ann, born September 13, 1827. She was adored by Samuel, and she would go on to be the model for Cousin Mary in Tom Sawyer. Third was Pleasant Hannibal. The birth date isn't for sure. They didn't keep track of that stuff all that well back then because a lot of people were just born in their house 
Uh, that, and they were puffing out kids left and right. That's true, too. It was either in 1828 or 1829, but he died just three months old, and even though Sam never met him, he was still told about his older brother and referred to him simply as Han. It, that, that's sad when you don't get to know a sibling. They die before you're born. We know we have some experience in that. And uh, you still try to tell your kids about this kid that came before them just so they know, but they're never able to have that connection. Uh, Margaret Lampton was born May 31st, 1830. She contracted a bilis fever, a term used to describe several disorders of the liver, and died August 17th, 1839. There's a story one night, shortly before her death, uh, Sam was found sleepwalking beside her bed. Now, the family took this to be a sign of her imminent death, later believing that Sam possessed a supernatural instinct, something that would play on his mind as a boy and throughout his life, especially after what happens to his youngest brother, Henry. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. I don't, I don't believe in that type of stuff. I don't believe he had any uh, precognition of somebody's death. Did he? he? Wasn't a seer. I mean... Is there a possibility? There's a possibility of fucking everything, I suppose, but I highly doubt it. Now, Benjamin Lampton was born June 8th, 1832. Ben was just 10 years old when he suddenly died from an unspecified illness on May 12th, 1842, just days before his 11th birthday. Sam was six and a half at the time, and the death hit him harder than it did with Margaret. He was, he was older. He was closer to Ben than he was with Margaret because because he was older and they were closer in age. Um, Sam, re Sam remembers that this is the only time he ever saw his parents kiss at Ben's bedside. I'm guessing to comfort one another. I can't imagine it was some big, long, romantic thing. It was probably just a, a peck to let each other know that they were there for one another. Yeah, it's still sad that that's the only time he remembers. It's extremely sad that that's the only time he can remember. It's also very morbid that... He remembers his parents kissing at what? his brother's deathbed. But you got to think if that's the only time he ever saw it, that's going to stick in his memory pretty well. And yeah. Mark Twain and Sam has a pretty good memory. We'll find out. Uh, he can, even though he likes to twists a lot of things, he uh, he likes to have contradictory statements to the same story over time. But he does have a good memory. For some reason, Sam always felt responsible for Ben's death. He wrote in his journal, the case of the memorable treachery and dead brother Ben, my treachery to him. I, this is another thing that I looked all over for. I couldn't find any reason why he felt he was responsible for Ben's death, but it's obvious that he did. In 1835, the family moved to Florida, Missouri, so John could partner with Jane's brother-in-law. It was a successful farmer and shopkeeper. Sam was the next to be born in Monroe County, Missouri, followed by Henry on July 13, 1838. Henry and Sam were very close to siblings and friends, a bond reinforced, no doubt, by the death of Ben. They would grow up together, they would always play together, and later on, Sam would actually help Henry get a job. Probably not the best thing in the world, but it's, it, that's the way it works. Uh, we'll get more on that in a minute, but the family moved to Hannibal in 1839, where Samuel would get the inspiration for many of his writings. Also there, in the middle of February, John was riding home in freezing cold rain and ended up contracting pneumonia. He died after a long battle on March 24, 1847, when Sam was 11. John was only 49. This left the family destitute, and you can imagine that 
the only breadwinner who's not really bringing home that much bread in the first place is all of a sudden dead. Uh, this helped shape Twain's writings because he was now coming from a place of not just the poverty he was in, but now going to be extreme poverty. So let's talk about the city for a little bit, the city that really gave him inspiration for most of his writings that were based in this time period. So Hannibal was situated on the Mississippi River. It was in many ways a splendid place to grow up. Steamboats would show up about three times a day. Circuses, minstrel shows, revivalists paid visits. There was a decent library available. Tradesmen such as blacksmiths, tanners practiced their entertaining crafts for all to see. Like, uh, like if you go to an old Domino's and you see the people making the pizza. It, I mean, they're not making pizza back then. They're, you know, forming, you know, banging horseshoes out on anvils and, you know, tanning leather and all that shit. Doing the jobs that they were doing back in the day. Doing the jobs they were doing back in the day. But even though it was a, a good place to live as far as that went, it was also pretty violent. Uh, Twain saw plenty of it. When he was nine, he saw a local man murder a cattle rancher. And at 10, he watched a slave die after a white overseer struck him with a piece of iron. We all grew up in the age with TV. We saw plenty of violence, but it was rare you would actually see an actual dead body, an actual person being murdered when you're nine or 10, at least when we were kids, because when we were kids, the internet wasn't quite out by then yet. So I can imagine that probably had a pretty big impact on him. I never, I never seen a dead body, but I've I've seen people brutally beaten. Yeah, I mean I've never seen anybody die. Like I've never been seen. I've, I've never seen anybody. Yeah, I've never seen anybody like killed. But I've been, I've seen dead bodies at funerals and stuff. But like I've never seen somebody get killed in front of me. Uh, Hannibal would inspire several fictitious locales, including St. Petersburg and Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. These imaginary river towns are complex places, sunlit and exuberant on one hand, but also viper's nests of cruelty, poverty, drunkenness, loneliness, and soul-crushing boredom. All parts of Twain's boyhood experience. It was pretty customary for kids to leave school early, but if you didn't have a, a future in some type of business or academics, it, it was pretty commonplace for kids to, to leave school early. Sam was no exception. He stayed in school until he was about 12, but with his father dead and the family needing a source of income, he found employment as an apprentice printer at the Hannibal Courier, which paid him a meager ration of food. It, I mean, it's not money, but at least one of them is getting fed. That means there's less people for his mother to have to worry about feeding. Yeah, and he could help feed his family with whatever he had left. Yeah, plus he's learning a trade. So, I mean, it helps. You wish they stayed in for schooling, but back then that wasn't near as big as a deal as working and feeding your family. Um, in 1851, at 15, he got a job as a printer, occasional writer, and editor at the Hannibal Western Union, a little newspaper owned by his brother, Orion. So you'd imagine if, if Orion's making money at the newspaper, he's, he might be able to help his family out. You'd, you'd think, but, I mean, the way they're writing it, and letting us know about good old Sam. He's putting it all on his shoulders as if he's the one responsible for his entire family. Well, Sam, 
Sam does take a lot of responsibility for his family. And later on, you'll see that he takes a lot of responsibility, even when he doesn't need to. When, when debt starts to pile up and creditors are telling him not to worry about it, he goes out of his way to make sure he pays every dime of what he owes. So he, he does have that in him to take responsibility like that. You just hope that over all of it, some of the other brothers and sisters helped out. Now, Sam would leave Hannibal for the first time in June of 1853 when he was just 17, working initially in St. Louis as a typesetter for a few months. But by late August, he was heading to the World's Fair in New York City. When he arrived, he wrote to his mother, you will doubtless be little surprised and somewhat angry when you receive this to find me so far from home. Well, I was out of work in St. Louis and didn't fancy loafing in such a dry place. There is no pleasure to be seen without paying well for it, and so I thought I might as well go to New York. I packed up my duds and left. So he pretty much just packed all his shit and left without telling anybody. He hey, just Mom, left. Bye. Fuck you. Just she just gets a letter in the mail. She's like, "Hey, remember me? I'm not there anymore." So New York, it's a crazy place now. It was a crazy place then, and the crazy pace was fascinating. But where he lived was small and dirty, and he loved it more every day. In a letter sent to his sister Pamela, I have been fooling myself with the idea that I was going to leave New York every day for the last two weeks. I have taken a liking to the abominable place. He lingered until late October when he traveled to Philadelphia, working again as a journeyman printer. The next three and a half years found him moving between New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Muscatan, Iowa, St. Louis, Keokuk, Iowa, and Cincinnati. This motherfucker got a round. He moved. He was he was a nomad. He did not stay in one place for more than, you know, a few years. And even if he did live somewhere, he was always traveling. He must have been doing odd jobs to make decent money because well, he couldn't move for free. Yeah, he was a journeyman printer for a while, so you imagine that he was getting sent out on jobs, but once he started writing, he started doing a bunch of lecture tours. Plus, his his first big job, his passion from when he was a kid, would take him up and down the Mississippi River. In February of 1857, he took passage on the Paul Jones from Cincinnati to New Orleans, intending to embark for the Amazon River to seek his fortune in the thriving cocoa trade. His plans changed when he met pilot Horace Bigsby. Before reaching New Orleans, Sam's boyhood dream would become a steam, to become a steamboat pilot had been revived. He convinced Bigsby to take him on as a cub pilot, or an apprentice, pretty much, for $500 with $100 in advance and the balance from future wages. Now, $500 is just under 14000 today, and the 100 is just under 3000 So can you imagine going to somebody and say, hey, let me be your apprentice for 14000 now and then a little under 3000 later. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Just like, here, give me money and I'll be your apprentice. But that's how up, up until, what, the 70s or, or 80s, you could just walk into a place and say, give me a job and you could get one and that doesn't work now. No, you have to have experience and degrees and... Yes. Trade... They want, they want you to have 10 years of experience for a job that hasn't existed for more than five years. Yes. <laughs> so after two years as a cub pilot, Sam got his license on April 9th, 1859 at the age of 23. 
He would be a pilot for another two years, and unlike many other pilots, he worked steadily on many of the Mississippi's finest boats due to his reputation as a safe helmsman. Sam loved the steamboat life, the ever-changing scenes, travelers coming and going, the cursing, the bells and noises that would wake him in the middle of the night, watching the sunrise over the river, the pilots and the visitors talking in the pilot house. It was the life he was seemed to be born into. He loved his career. It was exciting, well-paying, high status. It would be like uh, flying a jetliner today. You know, those pilots, they make a ton of money. They, they got influence, and they're like many celebrities in their own circles. Um, he said uh, in his book, Life on the Mississippi, I love the profession far better than any I have followed since, and I took a measureless pride in it. The reason is plain. A pilot in those days was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived on Earth. That was something huge. He loved independence. That's why when he writes for a lot of the papers and magazines later on, that that was the main thing that drove him to write for them because he had the independence to write whatever he wanted. He was not somebody who was big on being told what he could and couldn't do. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that's why he used a pen name, too. He didn't want people knowing who he was. He liked the... Anonymity? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't all happy times on the river, though. One of the biggest tragedies of Twain's life would occur on the Mississippi River. In 1858, he would encourage his brother Henry to join him on the Pennsylvania as a mud clerk. Uh, it was a starting position without pay, pretty much an internship like we would have now. And its name literally came from the fact that he would often have to go ashore into the mud to perform his duties. He'd get payment for cargo and lists for things and, and you know, all this other shit. And he was in the mud pretty much the whole time. So he just became a mud clerk. Uh, there's a lot of steamboat jargon here, which I don't understand because I don't own a steamboat. I wish I did. You're no steamboat willy. Because I would understand all this shit, but I don't own a steamboat. But the most important thing you need to know that I've taken from this is that this particular boat had two engines, one on either side of the boat, that were powered by five high-pressure boilers with double flues. Henry was a good worker, and Sam knew it. So when pilot named William Brown accused Henry of not delivering a message to stop at a plantation, he yelled and hit him. Sam responded by beating the shit out of Brown on the floor of the pilot house. Pretty much just a good old-fashioned MMA grounded pound. Don't fuck with my brother. Don't fuck. That's, that's the thing with brothers. I can fuck with you. Nobody else can. And I'm sure that's probably how it was with them. Sam probably beat Henry to a pulp plenty of times, but nobody else was allowed to. My brothers were the same way. Your brothers were the same way. No. No? <laughs> <laughs> my younger brother used to beat the shit out of me. But did he let other people do it? So anyway, the captain knew how Brown was and quietly approved of Sam's actions. The captain offered to get rid of Brown and give Sam the daylight watch on the return trip from New Orleans to St. Louis. Sam wasn't very confident in his ability to pilot the steamboat. So he decided to return upriver on the A.T. Lacey, another steamboat, and rejoin the Pennsylvania as soon as Brown could be replaced. This decision probably saved his life. Now, the following events are retold in Chapter 20 of Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. According to eyewitness George C. Harrison, 
at 4 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, June 13th, the Pennsylvania, with a wood flattened tow, which I'm, which is just like a barge that it pulls behind it, was moving easily upstream against a strong current, six miles below Memphis. The passengers aboard the Pennsylvania were either asleep or just waking up when the boilers exploded, destroying the front third of the boat. In a letter home, Sam wrote, Henry was asleep, was blown up, then fell back on the hot boilers, and I suppose that the rubbish fell on him, and for he is injured eternal, internally. He got into the water and swam to shore and got to the flatboat with the other survivors. He had nothing on but his wet shirt. He lay there burning with the southern sun and freezing in the wind till the Cape Frisbee came along. His wounds were not dressed till he got to Memphis, 15 hours after the explosion. He was senseless and motionless for 12 hours, but may God bless Memphis, this noblest city on the face of the earth. She has done her duty by these poor afflicted creatures, especially Henry, for he has had five, yea, 10, 15, 20 times the care, the attention that anyone else has had. Dr. Payton, the best, the best physician in Memphis, sat by him for 36 hours. There are 32 scalded men in that room, and would you know Dr. Payton better than I can describe him? You could follow him around and hear each man murmur as he passes, may the God of heaven bless you, doctor. Some later accounts say that Henry, wounded as he was, swam back to the Pennsylvania to help rescue the wounded before swimming to the flatboat, which was loaded with victims and cut loose to escape the spreading fire. It, that's all hearsay and whether or not he was strong enough to swim and help others after he had been in a boiler explosion. Uh, that night, Sam rushed to Henry and sat almost constantly at his bedside, appreciative of the kindness afforded by the people of Memphis. Henry, with his good looks, looks always help, appeared to be the favorite of many, so he did get plenty of care. His condition was grave, but he appeared to be getting better and looked to possibly be out of danger. At 11 o'clock on the sixth night, Dr. Payton advised Sam, in the event Henry couldn't rest, asked a physician in charge to administer a one-eighth of a gram of morphine. Henry woke up because of the complaining from the other patients and couldn't get back to sleep. Pain started to set in. Sam couldn't bear his brother's agony anymore. A young medical student was the only one in attendance, and Sam told him what the doctor had said. The student wasn't sure how to measure the one-eighth of a grain of morphine, but eventually tried. Henry sank into a heavy sleep and died before morning. Whether he died from an overdose of morphine or from his terrible injuries, Sam, again, just like Benjamin, blamed himself. And that's, that's very sad. I mean, it probably was the med student's fault, but... I mean, you, if he was getting better and then all of a sudden he gets the morphine and did he get... Was it one-eighth of a grain of morphine or did he give him half or a quarter, or who knows. Uh, the ladies of Memphis have been so taken with Henry that they raise funds to provide him with a metallic casket rather than see him in a plain wooden coffin. Henry was laid out wearing Sam's clothes. On his chest, an elderly lady had placed a bouquet of white roses with a single red rose in the middle. Sam had experienced a chillingly prophetic dream weeks earlier, and again, this goes on to the whole all precognition thing that honestly I I think this was probably something that he made up but he said Henry's body was in a metallic casket with white roses and a single red bloom on his chest in this dream that he had weeks earlier 
Henry was taken back to Hannibal, buried beside his father, John, in the Baptist Cemetery. But in 1876, Sam arranged for them to be moved to Mount Olivet Cemetery, which I imagine is probably a big undertaking back then because they didn't have the big heavy equipment to dig graves like they do now. So I mean, that's all people doing it by hand. Yeah, but didn't they have like grave diggers back then and they still had to do all that by hand anyway? Yeah, but you bury somebody and then all of a sudden now you got to move them. I think that was pretty common. Back I don't know then. how common. Yeah, I have no idea how common it was, but I can imagine that it. I can imagine that it probably sucked to do. Now, although Twain loved his career on the river, his service was cut short in April of 1861 by the outbreak of. Any the guesses? Civil War. The Civil War, which stopped most civilian traffic on the river. As the Civil War started, the people of Missouri were split between support for the Union and the Confederate. Uh, they are in one of those weird states where at the time they were still in the middle of arguing, were they going to be a slave state? Were they going to be a free state? This all was because of some bullshit that was happening in Maine of whether or not it should be a free state or a slave state, even though it's so far north. So a lot of people didn't know which way they wanted to go. Twain joined the Confederates in June of 1861, a volunteer militia called the Marion Rangers, which drilled for two weeks before disbanding. Where, he wondered then, would he find his future? What venue would bring him both excitement and cash? The answer, Great American West. On July 1861, he was on a stagecoach, headed west with his older, older brother, Orion, who had been appointed Secretary of the Nevada Territory. So, I mean, that's pretty big. Yeah, Orion's got it going on. Yeah, he knows what he's fucking doing, but he's the oldest, the oldest usually, not always, usually has the best head on their shoulders. But in this case, that's the truth. Now, prospectors were flocking to the region's gold and silver strikes. Before long, Sam was trying his luck. By about April 1862, he was prospecting near Aurora, and it was now that he began contributing humorous letters to the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise. Signed, Josh. Good old Josh. Good old fucking Josh. These were so popular that owner Joe Goodman offered Sam $25 a week to work for the newspaper, an offer he later increased to $40 a week. Now, it doesn't sound like much. $25 a week back then was about $720 a week now. And then the $40 a week was about $1,150. So, or $1,150. So that's a pretty good living if you're by yourself you're just writing some columns, having a good time. That's a lot of money for wonder, one person. Is that a, I wonder if that's the point where he started making more money than Orion. Well, it never really says how much money Orion made, but he, he was pretty well off, it seemed like. But they went out there together, but Sam kind of went on his own. They went out and, and, and Orion did his thing. Sam helped, but he... he he tried the whole prospect. He really wanted to strike it rich so he could go back to Missouri and take care of his mother. In late September, Sam would arrive in Virginia City to begin his 17-month stint with the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise, thriving on literary freedom it afforded. This was one of the busiest and happiest periods of his life because he had the freedom to pretty much write whatever he wanted about whatever he wanted. It's also when he began to use the name Mark Twain, which is 
slang. It's, it's steamboat slang for, do you remember? A rope? No. Or the measurement of? 12 feet of water. Yeah. Again, I don't know why it's slang for 12 feet of water. I didn't, I'm honest, I didn't really look it up. But that's what it was. That's what he went with. So he would sign pretty much everything going forward as Mark Twain, except for some humorous writings, and a book he wrote about his obsession, which we'll get to later. He became one of the best-known storytellers in the West. He developed a distinctive narrative style, friendly, funny, irreverent, often satirical, and always eager to deflate the pretentious, which is wonderful. Deflating the pretentious is just, it's so nice. There are a lot of pretentious people out there. And deflating them is fun. (laughs) Calling them out on their bullshit. I do like calling people out on their bullshit. You do like calling people out on their bullshit. That's one of my favorite things to do. It's it's one of my least favorite things that you do because there's a lot of times where I got to hope I don't get in a fight because (laughs) you call people out on their bullshit. Now, in May of 1864, he headed for San Francisco, working for the San Francisco Morning Call as a full-time reporter and later as at the Pacific correspondent for the Territorial Enterprise. He wrote for a number of publications, including The Californian and The Golden Era. In 1864, he, vid- he visited Jackass Hill, California, where he tried gold mining, but nothing panned out. Ah. Yeah, Good okay. Pun there. Good I, pun. I know. That I guess. Very funny. He overheard a bartender at the Angels Hotel in Angels Camp share a story about a frog jumping contest. So in 1865, when one of his tales about life in a mining camp, John Smiley and his jumping frog was printed in newspapers and magazines around the country. He would follow this with many short stories, too many to really get into, but a few of them, and some of these names are unfortunate. Advice to Little Girls, General Washington's Negro Body Servant, Cannibalism in Cars, and like 25 others. The next year, in 1866, he traveled to the Sandwich Islands writing for the Sacramento Union. And when he got back to California, he gave his first lecture on his travel experience. Sam left San Francisco for New York in the end of 1866. 1867, he undertook a Midwest lecture tour with stops in St. Louis, Hannibal, Quincy, Keokuk, published The Celebrating Jumping Frogs of Calaveras County and was commissioned to be a travel writer for the San Francisco Alto, California, aboard the Quaker City, an excursion to the Mediterranean, and back from June 8th to November 19th, 1867. That's a long trip. About four months. Writing humorously about the sights for American newspapers with an eye towards getting the book out of the trip, in 1869, The Innocents Abroad was published and it became a nationwide bestseller. It presents itself as an ordinary travel book based on an actual voyage in a retired Civil War ship, the USS Quaker City. The excursion was billed as a Holy Land expedition with numerous stops and side trips along the coast of the Mediterranean. So the most notable of which were a train excursion from Marcella to Paris, for the 1867 Paris expedition during the reign of Napoleon III and the Second French Empire. Uh, A journey through the Papal States to Rome, a side trip through the Black Sea to Odessa, culminating in an excursion through the Holy Land. Twain wrote down his observations, critiques of various aspects of culture and society, which he encountered on the journey. 
Some more serious than others. A lot of what he saw and wrote stood in contrast from the often grandiose accounts and other travel logs. You got all these other people writing about this area t- saying, oh, well, this was so great and this was so big and beautiful. And, and he really said, listen, this isn't near as great as what everybody else is saying. This isn't as beautiful as everybody else is saying. The culture's kind of fucked up. This is kind of fucked up. That's kind of fucked up. And a lot of these other travel logs were regarded in their own time as indispensable aids for traveling in the region. So if you went in thinking the culture was like this because of these travel aids, and it wasn't, as an American, you're kind of fucked. So Twain kind of went against all that and said, told the truth. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what you you want is the truth. I mean, not everybody wants the truth. Most of the time, people most of the time pe- people want to want to hear what they think the truth is. They don't want to actually hear the truth. And I that's like truth. that's not what Twain was about. He wasn't about telling you what you wanted to hear. He was going to tell you exactly what the truth was, whether it was what you wanted to hear or not. Twain also made light of his fellow travelers and the natives of the countries and regions that he that he visited, as well as his own expectations and reactions. This was his first and seemingly most successful travel book, but definitely not his last. He actually writes a lot of travel books. I mean, not like hundreds, but he does write a large handful of travel books in his own way, the, you know, the Mark Twain way. I didn't realize that going into this, how many he had written. Um, it doesn't make me think any different of them. It's just it's another little tidbit of information that I didn't know going into the research. No, we didn't know he traveled a lot either I I mean I knew he traveled like cross country and I knew he did lectures every once in a while I knew he had been to England I didn't realize how extensively it was just a constant move 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 that he could not keep his feet still on board the Quaker City Sam met Charles Langdon who showed him an ivory miniature of his sister Livy he asked to see it repeatedly he finally met Livy near the end of the year when he ate with the Langdon family in New York and escorted, ex, escorted, escorted, thank you, blah, blah, escorted Livy to hear Charles Dickens read. The next year, he visited the Langdon summer home in Elmira several times. He saw her as the epitome of feminine refinement and delicacy and appealed to her to refine him. That's another thing you'll see is that He's a town boy. He comes from a working class. You got to get down in the mud and do the work yourself. But all he wants to be is an East Coast socialite. That's Upper class, snotty. He wants to be an aristocrat. He, he wants the, the wealth and the admiration. He wants all that. And, and he wants her to he reform to a- him. He wants to be a preppy New Englander. Well, I don't know if I'd say preppy, because preppy puts on this air. He didn't mind doing the work. He didn't mind getting his hands dirty. But he wanted to be, uh, he wanted to live that life that his now girlfriend uh, had been living her entire life. It's something that he had always aspired to, much like his father. He, He worried about being a Westerner. In those years, the country's cultural life was dictated by an eastern establishment centered in New York City and Boston. 
much like how the establishment is now New York City or L.A. Uh, he had L.A. L- <laughs> he had an almost overwhelming sense of inferiority, feelings that were competing with his aggressiveness and vanity. Uh, Twain's fervent wish was to get rich, support his mother, rise socially, and receive what he called the respectful regard of high Eastern civilization. What, it, it seemed odd to me when I found all this out because he always seemed like the type of person that didn't give a shit about what anybody thought of him. But it turns out, deep down, really, he did. Like, maybe not the people who were on his level. He didn't give a shit about what the other steamboat pilots really th- thought of him. But he cared a lot about what these aristocrats thought of him. Well, maybe it's because he grew up poor and when he's around rich people, he didn't want them looking down on him. Well, nobody wants to be looked down on. It's, I was surprised to find out that he gave a shit that anybody cared about who he was or how he was or what culture he belonged to. He just always seemed to me to be the, you know, you know go fuck yourself type of guy. When In reality, he really did care about what people in this type of society thought about him. He asked Livy to marry him in 1868. She said no. <laughs> so if anything's going to put you back in your place, it's asking a woman you love to marry her, to marry you, and her telling you no. What would you have done if I said no? Uh, well, I would have done what he did. Uh, he went on a lecture tour through California and Nevada in November and December. In February of 1869, he proposed to Livy again, and this time... She said yes. Their engagement was formally announced after her father had quietly checked Sam's references. I, I asked for your father's hand in marriage. And you asked. <laughs> I, 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 asked, I asked your father for your hand in marriage. He said yes. Never once did he ask to see any references, which I'm glad. Of. I'm glad. Like, no, it wasn't, let me see your credit score, because that might have been a deal breaker. Um, the lecture tours continued through 1869 and he bought a share in the Buffalo Express Sam and Livy were married February 2nd, 1870 writing to a friend shortly after his wedding Twain wrote I have the only sweetheart I have ever loved she is the best girl and the sweetest and gentlest and the daintiest and she is the most perfect gem of womankind and that's beautiful it is Livy was born November 27th 1845 in Elmira, New York, the second of three children born to Jervis and Olivia Langdon. Jervis. Jervis. She lived a very posh and sheltered life, her family being one of the richest in Elmira. Livy, like many people during that time, took pride in her upbringing. She was rich and she knew it. And from what I, I mean, from what I understand, she made sure other people knew it too. Oh, what a bitch. Well, I don't know if she's a bitch or not, but it, it seemed like through reading it that she was proud of who she was. She was proud of where she came from. And usually if you're proud of where you come from, you let other people know where you come from. So it never went out and specifically said that she was me. I mean, you see later with her kids and with her husband that she was very understanding of everything that was going on. Um, so I don't know if I would call her a bitch. But, no, but the fact that you said that she knew she was rich she and knew, she let everyone she knew know she it, was rich she and, didn't earn any of that fucking money. She got it from her parents. That's a bitch. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. So Twain hoped that she would reform him to the lifestyle that she was living. 
Uh, the couple settled in Buffalo, New York, in a house that was a wedding present from Livy's father. I don't know if you can say that anybody, any of aristocrats live in Buffalo, but it's probably not the city you think of when you think of aristocrats. No, not really. Uh, they lived in a house that was a wedding present from Livy's father. Sam edited on the Express, wrote a monthly column for a New York literary magazine called The Galaxy, which I didn't even think they knew about galaxies back then. I'm sure they had scientists and such. Uh, he began work on an account of his experiences in Nevada and California that would become the book Roughing It, another travel book, in which would be published in 1872 a prequel to The Innocents Abroad, and is dedicated to his mining companion, Calvin H. Higby. He completed another lecture tour between November 69 and January 1870. 1870 is going to be a very difficult year for Sam and Livy. Their first child, Langdon, is born November 7th. He was premature and remained sickly. Now, Twain was ecstatic about the birth. Um, he sent out letters and and let everybody know I have a son but the child fought with sickness through his entire short life passing only 19 months on June 2nd 1872 most likely from diphtheria which which I hope I'm pronouncing that right which is something you get vaccinated for now and it's pretty much been eradicated there's a problem because a lot of people are deciding not to do that anymore which is fucking stupid. Vaccinate your fucking kids. Vaccinate your fucking children. Don't let your kid be like Mark Twain's kid and die from something they don't need to die from, for fuck's sake. And if you listen to this, and you are one of those that decided not to vaccinate your children, not because of a medical issue where they can't get vaccinated, because there are plenty of kids out there who can't be vaccinated because they have a medical issue, that their, their immune... Co- immunocompromised. If they get vaccine, they could die. That's a real thing. Those people should not be vaccinated. So it's up to everybody around them to be vaccinated. If you're somebody who doesn't believe in vaccinations, turn this fucking podcast off and just go away. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't need you to listen to this if you don't vaccinate your kids. Period. Also, kids, if you want to get vaccinated and you're over the age of 14, you can go to the doctor's office and get vaccinated without your parents' permission. So in 1870, also saw Livy's father die, followed by her close friend while staying in a Buffalo home. Uh, 1871, encouraged by Hartford's literary notables, Sam leased a house in the Nook Farm neighborhood and bought land beside Farmington Avenue on which to build a home. He continued his lecture tours and visited England for this first time. This home that they would buy would become the Hartford House, which becomes a, is now a historical landmark. He wrote a large portion of his most famous works in that house. Next was Olivia Susan Clemens, called simply Susie, born March 19, 1872. Sam and Susie had an extraordinary bond from a very young age. Sam, now 38 years old, had been and becoming a literary celebrity, returned to England with his family in 1873. That year saw the publication of his first work of fiction, The Gilded Age of Tale of Today, which he wrote with Charles Dudley Warner that poked fun at the greed and political corruption of, of post-Civil War America. Now this, this is where the term Gilded Age come from. Uh, you've heard of the Golden Age, you've heard of the Gilded Age. The entire era 
of time that is considered the Gilded Age is named after this book. Twain and Warner got the name from Shakespeare, King John. To gild refined gold, to paint the lily, is wasteful and ridiculous excess. Gilding a lily, which is already beautiful and not need of further adornment, is excessive and wasteful. Characteristics of the age that Twain and Warner wrote about in the novel. Another interpretation of the title, of course, is the contrast between an ideal golden age and the less worthy gilded age, as gilding is only a thin layer of gold over a, a cheaper metal, like coating something that's just lead in gold. Yeah, I think Twain would have a heyday coming up with the new name for what's going on now. Yeah, no shit. Uh, although not one of Twain's more well-known works, it has appeared in more than a hundred editions since its original publication in 1873. It was the only book he worked on with a collaborator. He was big on doing things on his own. Clara Langdon Clemens was then born June 8, 1874, and be, would be the only one of their children to outlive Twain. Twain buried all of his kids but one. So again, following in the footsteps of his parents, having to bury all your kids. She would be the only one of the children to accompany Twain on his round-the-world tour, spent time in a sanitarium after a mental breakdown, took control of his estate after Twain's eventual death, leaving most of her father's papers to the University of California, giving rise to the Mark Twain Papers Project and the Mark Twain Foundation after her death in November 19, 1962. Yes, there was a, there was a Clemens alive in the 60s. She, she was the only one to live a nice, long life of his children. She did a lot of traveling. She went abroad. She ends up marrying some Russian dude. She was a musician. She, they spent a lot of money and time on her going overseas so she can, um, so she can go after this musical career that she wanted. And I don't know if it was just the exposure to, to everything else, but she was the only one who actually got to, to live a, a fairly long, healthy, and from what I understand, prosperous life. Sam now settled into a most productive period, discovering the literary treasure of his youth in the Mississippi. Old Times on the Mississippi, a series of sketches appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1875. His thoughts had returned home, and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer would be published in 1876. Finally, we get to one that everybody knows. All right? Doesn't matter if you know anything about Mark Twain. If you went to school in the United States, you know The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Yeah, every, everyone should know it if they went to school in the United States. If you States. went to the school in the United States, you know The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. You might not have ever read it. You might have been one of those people that just sat there and kind of listened while the teacher read it, but you know of it. Uh, it is set in 1940s, the fictional town of St. Petersburg, inspired by Hannibal. Tom Sawyer has several adventures, often with his friend Huckleberry Finn. It was at first considered a failure. Uh, the book ended up being the best selling of any of Twain's works during his lifetime. Uh, I think Huckleberry Finn has surpassed that, but while he was living, Tom Sawyer sold was the best selling of any of his books. The real Tom Sawyer, and yes, there was a real Tom Sawyer, was a heavy drinking firefighter and local hero that Mark Twain befriended in the 1860s. The pair met in the steam rooms in San Francisco in 1863, where Sawyer, the real Sawyer, 
told the incredible story of how he had saved dozens of people from shipwreck steamer off Baja, California. Sawyer claims he swam back and forth between the ship and the shore, a feat of amazing strength and stamina, he says himself, and is credited with saving 90 lives at sea, 26 single-handedly. This guy was a drinker, just like Twain, liked to tell a story, just like Twain. How much of it is true? I mean, I don't know. Drunkards telling stories, they always, you know... Tell stories. Yeah. <laughs> Twain was riveted by Sawyer's story, and the pair went to become friends. Sam was a dandy, he was, Sawyer said about Twain. He could drink more and talk more than any feller I ever seen. He sat down and take a drink, and then he'd begin to tell us some joke or another. Then, when somebody'd buy him a drink, he'd keep up all day. Once he got started, he'd sit there till morn telling yarns. One morning, after a quote, momentous bender, Twain told his friend, Tom, I'm going to write a book about a boy, and the kind I have in mind was just about the toughest boy in the world. Tom, he was such a boy as you must have been. How many copies will you take, Tom? Half cash. So he was going to write a story about him, and then he was going to sell him his own story for half price. <laughs> Twain left San Francisco. The pair never met again. Uh, in 1876, Twain said the character was based on three boys. He later said that he himself was the inspiration behind the character and that Tom Sawyer was, quote, not the real name of any person I ever knew so far as I can remember. So that's one of those examples where it's the same story that he twists over and over however he feels. I mean, technically all three of those stories could be correct, but he was drunk at different times and could remember them differently. He could base part of the character off Tom Sawyer that he met, part of it off of those three other boys, and part of the character off of himself at, at different intervals of the book. Well, the belief that Twain named his character after his friend was never disputed while they were both alive. That's more of something that uh, after they had both both passed, people were like, well, was it really? But while they were alive, it was it was something that I guess you just say common knowledge that he he based this off of this person and then he changed that as time went on. And in 19 in a, a 19 in an 1898 newspaper article Sawyer told a reporter about the influence he had had on Twain's most famous novel. You want to know how I came to figure in, in this book? Well, as I said, we both was fond of telling stories and spinning yarns. Sam was mighty fond of children's doings, and whenever he see any little feller a-fighting in the street, he'd always stop and watch him, and then he'd come up to the Blue Wing Saloon and describe the whole doings, and then I'd try to beat, him, beat his yarn by telling him one of the antics I used to play when I was a kid and say, I don't believe there ever such a little devil ever lived as I was. Sam, he would listen to these pranks of mine with great interest. He'd occasionally take them down in his notebook. One day he says to me, I'm going to put you in between the covers of a book someday, Tom. Go ahead, Sam, I said, but don't disgrace my name. Even though there are questions of the origins of Tom, we do know for a fact that there were some characters directly inspired by real people, namely Aunt Polly, by his mother Jane, mm -hmm. cousin Mary by his sister Pamela, yes, and Sid by his brother Henry, to which he said Henry was Sid, but Sid could never fully be Henry. Uh, he didn't believe that anybody could live up 
to Henry. He pretty much worshipped the ground that that kid walked on until the day he died. The Clemens family lived a year and a half in Central and Southern Europe in 1878-79 so that Sam could gather material for another travel book, A Tramp Abroad. Uh, Tramp Abroad was published in 1880. The book details a journey by the author with his friend Harris, a character created for the book based on his closest friend, Joseph Twitchell. Through Central and Southern Europe, the, the goal of the journey was to walk most of the way. So walking across Europe. But the men find themselves using other forms of transportation as they cross the continent. It is often thought to be an unofficial sequel to The Innocents Abroad. They make their way through Germany, the Alps, Italy, Twain's character is the narrator, and he talks like he knows everything, when in reality, he really doesn't know shit. So he's just, I guess he's portraying himself as the stereotypical American from today, where you go somewhere and, oh, I've seen that. I know what that is. When really, you have no fucking clue what you're talking about. He's probably just basing it off of the information he got from regular travel magazines. It's a possibility. Well, he had been to Europe by this time, so, and he was writing about it while he was there. So I think he was he was basing it mostly on the people that were around him. He would listen to the people around him and and think to himself, these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So that's what that's he would base it on. Too. Now, the last of their children was Jane Lampton Clemens. She'll be known as Jean. Born July 26, 1880, she contracted scarlet fever at age two and began suffering from seizures around 10. In 1896, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. 1899, they traveled to Sweden for treatment, and from 1904 to 1908, she would spend time in and out of various sanatoriums. So that's the end of him having children. There's still a lot of books to go. We we got his probably his biggest one still to come uh his publishing house that he had which kind of went up in flames um, his friendships with some of the most interesting people from that time um this crazy obsession that he had and i can't wait to find out what it you was can't find, <laughs> and uh quotes misquotes his eventual death uh hopefully we get to all that next episode I'd like this to be a two-episoder and not a three-episoder, but whatever happens, happens. Uh, so what would you think? I liked it. You like it? Have fun? Yes. Well, hopefully everybody out there liked it. Um, if you did, please, wherever you listen to podcasts, click subscribe, rate us, review us. It will help us a lot. We're new at this. We're not, we're not trying to hide the fact that we're new at this. This is... We can only get better with information. Yeah, so... Um, email us at info at audioparfait.com and let us know what you think. If you have any ideas for authors that you'd like us to cover, uh, books that you would like us to cover, um, how to make the show better, hopefully not how to make the show worse because that would be counterproductive to what we're doing. Uh, and until we put out the new, next episode and we talk to you next time, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. Yes, go open a fucking book. Bye. Bye. See ya. Have fun storming the castle. Bye. <laughs>